Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. This week, we talk with Greg Nemet, professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the La Follette School of Public Affairs and the Nelson Institute's Center for Sustainability and the Global Environment. We'll be discussing one of today's hot topics in climate research, the future of carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere, with a particular focus on negative emissions technologies. In other words, we'll be talking about climate solutions that, well, suck. Stay with us. Hi, Greg. Nice to follow up from our conversation at a conference earlier this year. So thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Greg, let's start by introducing you to our listeners. So you sit in the Public Affairs School at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where everyone is apparently extremely productive because it is too cold to go outside. I agree with you. People are very productive here, but it's because (laughs) (laughs) because they're biking to work in the ice and snow and things like that. Very nice. I will say, too, I have heard Madison is an absolutely lovely city. So whatever February holds is more than made up for by other months of the year. So yeah. And then so at the university, you are also affiliated with the Environmental Studies Program. From a quick peruse of your CV, you studied economics and geography as an undergraduate. You studied energy as a graduate student. So you're kind of a disciplinary mutt, for lack of a better term. Absolutely. Um, can, you, <laughs> can you tell our listeners a bit more about sort of the common threads that run through your research or what what drew you to those topics that you work on today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of it is driven by trying to understand how, how the world works or how things work and trying to work on important problems. And a lot of times, you know, you can make an important contribution on important problems by, uh, you know, refining a methodology or pushing theory forward or really advancing the state of the art within a discipline. And that's a lot of, you know, has, has made tremendous progress in terms of our society today. But there are these other problems or other aspects of problems where you really need to be pulling different aspects and using different perspectives, different methodologies and pulling them together. So for example, I did a graduate program at Berkeley that included public policy, economics, engineering, and environmental systems. And I I really find I draw on all of that on a Mm day-to-day basis to be working on energy issues. Well, that's great that all those disciplines that you've actually invested time in learning are actually coming into play. And I think the topic that we're going to focus on today probably does draw on a lot of those um, pieces of knowledge as well. So today we're going to be talking about technologies and maybe a little bit about policies involved in carbon dioxide removal uh, or CDR, as it is sometimes called. Can you start by telling us how CDR is different from uh, some of the other climate strategies that are more frequently talked about, like mitigation or adaptation? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say is, you know, mitigation in English, that means to make a problem not so bad. But in climate speak, that means something much more specific, and it means reducing emissions. But we can also address the climate problem in other ways. And one is by adapting our societies and where we live and how we live, how we move around to a climate that's going to be different than it is today. And that's adaptation. And another thing we can do is remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere that are already up there. That's what CDR is about. And it's something that really hasn't been discussed uh, in a large and serious way until, I don't know, the last few years. And I think that's for a few reasons. I think one, people felt that it was a distraction from the hard work of doing mitigation, that is reducing emissions. And on the other hand, it was uh, harder to see why it was needed. But I think those things are, are changing now and it's becoming taken more seriously. 
Yeah, so that's a really good point. I noticed, again, from checking out your publication record that you actually started publishing on this topic in 2012. And I would say that, you know, most conversations about CDR were pretty uh, under the radar at that point. So what sort of sparked your interest back then? And then why do you think the conversation has, has gained momentum now? Yeah, so yeah, I was, you know, living in California in 2005, 2006, when there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of venture capital going into clean tech, there was a lot of uh, an inconvenient truth had just come out, there was a stern review on climate change had come out. And in 2009, there was a bill that passed the House of Representatives of a cap and trade bill. And then, you know, the the big uh, climax of all of this building up was going to be this uh, Copenhagen Climate Convention in uh, in late 2009. President Obama went to that and a lot of other heads of states. And it really turned out to be a huge disappointment. There was almost mm-hmm. no agreement that came out of it. And so in the wreckage of 2009, then we had the financial crisis, that climate bill that passed in the House never got voted on in the right, Senate. Right, Waxman Markey, yep. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And so it really seemed like it just it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and so I, I think for me, I started getting taking much more seriously these types of approaches to dealing with climate change that could be a bit more reactive. That is, mm-hmm. if the problem got a lot worse, or if suddenly there was a focusing event like other environmental problems, and we decided we had to get smart and get active about it very quickly, what are the means that we have available? And, you know, unlike other environmental problems, just stopping the flow of emissions into the atmosphere, it doesn't quite do the job like it might for particulates or acid rain or others where those pollutants get rained out of the sky within days or weeks. Mm -hmm. With climate change, you put them up in the atmosphere and they're there for 100 years. And so there's no quick fix, even if we took radical efforts to um, stop the flow of, uh, of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So mm-hmm. that got me interested in, you know, how could we deal with it if we had to react quickly? And so adaptation got taken more seriously. Uh, solar radiation management was another one to start taking seriously. And then carbon removal was another one to start taking seriously. And I guess as I started looking into that, the one that seemed to have the fewest trade-offs um, was this uh, direct air capture. And that's that's where it started working on in 2009. And then we published a paper in 2012 on that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it really um, got motivated in part by thinking, wow, it doesn't look like we're getting our act together in terms of collective action to reduce emissions. Right. The mitigation side was looking awfully yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's still played out today, right? At the subnational level, we've probably made more progress. But at the national level, you know, we're 10 years out and we still don't have a mitigation policy. So I would say you and your co-authors were um, definitely ahead of your time on that one. It can be frustrating to see um, and to think, you know, in a way, you know, we've known around this problem for quite a long time. I think the world knew about it in a serious way in the late 1980s, 1990, Rio Convention 1992. So in a way, we've been dithering for 30 years on trying to do something about it. But I do think that there have been... Uh, things happening in the background that actually make the problem more solvable and more um, more close to doing something about um, compared to five or ten years ago. So I do think there is a way in which we haven't just been wasting our time, even though we have been doing that. There's been some positive things that have been happening as well. But there's yeah. also uh, a much stronger urgency to do something about it as we see time go by and the and the science saying, you know, it's very rare to get a study saying, oh, it's, you know, these impacts or these feedback effects are going to be less intense than we thought they might be. It's actually right. not that bad. Like it almost never, we almost never see news that way. Right, right. So 
I'm going to throw this question in here and maybe we can come back to this later too, but I am curious, you know, you've talked a little bit about mitigation and adaptation and of course, carbon dioxide removal. Do you see these strategies as complementary? Are they substitutes for each other? Are they, in your, in your view, is it really, we're going to need an all, all of the above approach at this point? Yeah, all of the above. I think they're, I think they're really complements to each other. And I think any one of them on its own is just a, a disaster that's not going to work. So just reducing emissions, we, we still need to do adaptation. We can't just protect ourselves by building seawalls and adapting the climate. That'll be insufficient. We can't just invest or rely on putting mirrors up in space to block sunlight. That's, that's not going to do it either. And even, you know, carbon removal itself has limits to how much we can do. And I think there's also limits to how much we want to do. So it, mm-hmm. like any of these things, when we do it at massive scale, which we'll have to do anyway, but if we were to re- rely on only one of those kind of levers, it would be even larger scale. And so all of them have side effects and negative impacts, and, and those would be larger if we did them at, at larger scale. So yeah, I definitely see adaptation, geoengineering, mitigation, and carbon removal as complementary strategies, mm-hmm. all of the above, as you say. Okay. Well, good. Let's talk a little bit then about some of the specific carbon dioxide removal options that are out there. Um, And they seem to fall into a couple of different buckets. There are some natural solutions, some ones that might be more focused on technology, and then ones that are a bit of a hybrid where you might actually use technology to enhance a natural solution to actually sequester more CO2. So um, yeah, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about the wealth of options that that are out there and that you've looked at? Yeah, there's quite a few, and some of them will be very familiar to people, and some will seem quite exotic. So uh, one that I'd start with maybe is uh, planting trees. So you can st- store a lot of carbon. A classic in, choice. Yep. Yeah. In plants and in the wood of trees, and we do a lot of that already. And so by uh, growing more forests and reforesting places that have been deforested, um, we could store more carbon in those trees, and that is appealing for I guess for some pretty obvious reasons. So. It doesn't necessarily have to be very expensive. It's not something that we have to prove that we know how to do. Um, So that's a very appealing uh, strategy to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But like any of these strategies, it has downsides as well. So, for example, you know, just planting lots of trees. To me, the the biggest issue is land use. So if it's, you know, if that's land that had been used for grazing or for agriculture, then you're competing with food. And if you plant trees there, that would increase food prices and that's important because one of the biggest concerns people have about the impacts of climate change is declining crop yields and food insecurity and food prices that could go up as a result of that. So we definitely right, don't, so wanna, you don't want to exacerbate that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't want a solution yeah. that is uh, causing a problem that we're worried <laughs> right. about. So uh, the other issue with trees is permanence too. So the okay. CO2 gets stored in those trees, um, but you, you have to keep rotating them because the trees will eventually die and decompose. Um, but also, if you decide to change your mind about storing them in those trees, um, then you have a release as well. So the permanence is reversible, unlike some of the other ones. Right. Okay. And is there something, is there a sense of scale that to be thinking about when it comes to afforestation to actually adding more trees as well? Um, I think uh, my understanding is that there have been studies that look at how much of the Earth's surface you would need to, re- to reforest or afforest to really deal with carbon dioxide removal just through trees and it's basically impossible you'd have to plant forests over all cities and things like that so is there a sense of scale that also matters yeah so we we definitely couldn't do uh only only uh, trees maybe to put it in perspective a little bit um so we're putting about um 
40 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. And that's every year we're doing that, so we're adding more and more. Um, if you look at some of the scenarios about trying to stay at two degrees or less, we're talking about needing to remove about a quarter of what we're emitting today, so about 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. And the high, when we did the study last year, the highest estimate we could get for how much CO2 you could remove from trees is about three and a half gigatons of CO2. So that's maybe okay. a third of what we need to remove, but that's with doing as much mitigation as we already can. So we're not right. talking about solving the problem with trees, but it could be an important part of it. Sure. Yeah. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I don't want to be too dismissive of it either because it has other co-benefits that we might want to embrace, but also challenges. So um, yep. that's really helpful. I'm glad you had those numbers at the tip of your tongue. It's always great to have that perspective. Okay. What other what other options are out there? Uh, another one, and this is maybe uh, more of a, of a hybrid of a, a natural plus an industrial process um, where you could create bioenergy growing crops, using crop waste, um, things that, you know, take use photosynthesis to take CO2 out of the air and turn it into some kind of plant material. Then you take that plant material and you burn it. And as you burn it, just like burning coal or something, you uh, create heat and you can make electricity or use that heat. And so you have useful energy that comes out of burning those crops. And then if you add another process, which is where you capture this carbon dioxide that's in the flue gas that comes out of that burning, compress it, move it to somewhere, and then pump it underground, then you're actually net taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, putting it into plants, and then taking that CO2 and putting it underground, and you're making energy. And that has a lot of people excited because it it's it's natural in that you're using photosynthesis, it's productive in that you're creating electricity or heat energy, and then you have this permanent storage when you put it underground. So that, that has a lot of appeal, and that sometimes comes under the the jargony acronym of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage or right, BEX. Right, BEX. Yeah, yeah, okay. My understanding is that that also has, um, it has advocates, of course, but there's a fair amount of pushback. And is is that also for some of the reasons that you mentioned uh, related to food security and the sort of... Yeah, and even more because you're trying to, you know, have high yields to get a lot of crops uh, to put into your power plant. And so you actually need pretty productive land to make those crops. And so right. it's competing with food there. Um, it's an industrial process, so um, we're talking about making making power plants uh, there, and then you have to store that CO2 somewhere as well. But I think if I would, you know, focus on the one thing, I think it's this this food fuel competition. I think is a real real issue with Bex. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then another one. I'm just trying to, you know, there's others as well, but just to kind of span the range of possibilities from ones sure. that seem pretty natural to ones that are kind of a combination of natural with an industrial process to ones that are just purely industrial. And I, I would say direct air capture fits into that last category. So that's okay. doing what we've done for 80 years in submarines or 60 years in spacecraft, which is to remove the CO2 that gets exhaled by humans and scrub it out or absorb it uh, and then capture it and then put it somewhere else. And so you could take that same idea, similar technology, and absorb CO2 that's in the atmosphere, capture it, bind it onto a contactor and then heat it up and release that CO2 and then do what we did with Bex, which is to compress it and move it away and transport it and then pump it underground and store it permanently, just like with Bex. So that's interesting. Um, to me, mainly, it doesn't have that main side effect that 
uh, forests and becks have, which is it's not competing with food and it's not competing with land. It really does not take a big uh, land footprint. You know, it's kind of similar mm -hmm. to maybe how a wind turbine, you see it, but it's not taking up a lot of space. And so you can have crops and grazing and other activities right next to it. And that could be mm -hmm. similar uh, for direct air capture. Um, the biggest issue, and it's been kind of dismissed for uh, the last 10 years or so, is that it's just impossibly expensive. At least that was the thinking. And there was an estimate by the American Physical Society of about $600 per ton of CO2. And that's mm -hmm. that's really expensive compared yeah, to, you know, the price of CO2 in Europe now is in the mid to high 20s. And the average price for the whole world is something like $5 per ton of CO2. So to be talking about $600 seems impossible. But there's a few entrepreneurs and companies that didn't really listen to that report and just started trying to develop the technology on their own. And there's three of them now, and they're starting to actually build plants that are actually doing this in a real way. And someone is using the CO2, and in some cases they're storing it. Um, but those plants look like they're more in the neighborhood of maybe $200 per ton of CO2. And there's a pretty convincing pathway to get down to $100 per ton of CO2. And if mm -hmm. you're at $100 per ton of CO2, um, then, then I think we're in business. Then I think we're kind mm -hmm. of around the willingness to pay that people have to deal with this deal with this problem so that's uh that's pretty interesting to see how that technology is developing yeah so it sounds like there are a number of options out there across sort of the natural to technological range one thing that i've thought about as these options have been described is how are we going to know how much to invest in which ones that's a bit of a ridiculous question because obviously we're going to have to make some choices. There's not going to be a sort of a perfect answer out there. But if you were a policymaker or an investor in technology, um, how would you begin to decide which of these solutions to implement in to what degree and, and perhaps where as well? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, my thinking on it is similar to before with this idea of, you know, having a portfolio of mitigation, carbon removal adaptation, maybe some geoengineering as a backup plan. Even within carbon removal, I think we're going to be best off if we've got multiple solutions in place because they all have downsides. And some of them, you know, it could actually be nice to have a portfolio of these different options. Some of them will work better in, in different parts of the world. Uh, places where there's land available, you might do the land intensive part. So uh, I like to have, you know, many options at our disposal, but we don't have an unlimited budget and this is an expensive um, problem. I guess the, the other aspect of that that I would introduce at this point too is, you know, we're talking about needing tens of billions of tons of removal. So again, about 25% of what we're emitting right now by mid-century. And so that seems like quite distant. Um, but if you look at other technologies and how long it takes to scale up and have them widely adopted, that's that means we actually really have to get started very soon on starting to prove some of these technologies, build pilot plants, and then start to scale them up pretty quickly after that. So if we really want to be doing, say, 10 gigatons of removal by mid-century, we need to have these technologies out there on a pretty substantial scale in the next 10 years. And that really means starting right now with developing the technologies and starting to test them and looking at some of the side effects and uh, you know deploying them in demonstration plants. So I guess policy-wise or strategy-wise, I would think the next 10 years is the time to in part experiment, in part learn, and in part do some early deployments of all of these carbon removal technologies so that we can see what works, 
what can be improved, which ones seem like they're getting better, which ones seem like they have side effects that are just intolerable. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from doing some of that work uh, so that we, in say 2030, we can start to get really serious on deploying maybe a narrower set of them. So I think it's really the time for a broad portfolio of carbon removal mm -hmm. programs to go forward. A little bit of experimentation. Yeah. And it, I, if I'm not mistaken, the companies that have already started investing, particularly in the direct air capture side, are mostly European. I think there's one in Switzerland, perhaps other places in Europe. There's one in Switzerland, there's okay. one in the US, and there's one in Canada. Oh, great. Um, okay. So it's, it's relatively distributed. Um, and, you know, each of them has a real working uh, example where there's a real customer for the CO2. And I think that's a really big advance compared to where we were a couple of years ago. But just to put it in perspective, they need to be growing really quickly. They need to be growing, like doubling their production every year or so. And right now, if you put all those companies together, I think my estimate is there's about between two or 300 people in the world that are employed by air capture companies. Mm. And that's just not uh, aligned yeah, with the scale soft. of the problem. So, um, yeah. you know, yeah. it's promising to see those companies, but they need to uh, scale up. Yeah. And so you mentioned customers as well. Uh, that's a, an interesting uh, piece of the economics of this. So obviously, if there's a use for the CO2, if they can actually recoup some of the costs and sell that to someone else who can use the CO2, that does change the the economic picture just slightly. Um, what are some of the uses? And yeah. if if a customer can't be identified for whatever reason, what does it look like for for storage without that customer base in place? If that yeah. makes any sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one I think a lot of people are waiting for or looking for is a policy signal that would put a price on CO2 and maybe a price on emissions and presumably would include some kind of credit if you were to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So some kind of tax or cap and trade program that give credit to capturing um, carbon would you know, put a lot of these things in the money depending on what that price is. But in the meantime, it's helpful if there are other markets that aren't quite sensitive to, you know, the vagaries of elections or what Congress decides or what other countries decide to do. Those mm -hmm. can change a lot and they've proven to be very volatile. And even when you do have a system in place, the prices seem to go up and down very quickly like we've seen in the EU. And so it can be quite risky uh, for companies to bet everything on a policy like that. So what these three companies that I mentioned are quite savvy is they're looking for niche market. So customers that'll pay for CO2 today that are regardless of policy. So one place that you uh, pay for CO2 is making beverages. So it's not a gigaton a year market, but mm -hmm. it's enough. And some of the prices are high enough. And there's a range of prices that you could justify building uh, a plant to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, create pure CO2, and then put it into beverages. Yeah. Are there other product uses? Are there sort of pie in the sky product uses that people are talking about? Um, well, I mean, the other ones that I guess are less pie in the sky are, are just ones that are real right now. So there's using yeah. it for beverages. There's also using it for greenhouses. So that uh, company in Switzerland, their first plant was to increase the amount of CO2 in the air in the greenhouse by about 50%, which mm -hmm. would increase the crop yields of peppers and tomatoes that were being grown there. So that's an example of it. Another way to do it is uh, pumping CO2 into old oil fields. Of course, and, enhanced oil recovery. Yep. yep mm -hmm. Being able to get more oil out of that. And, you know, for a lot of these examples, they're not actually removing, they are removing CO2, but they're putting it back into the atmosphere. And so these aren't solutions to the climate problem. Um, 
but they are solutions to demonstrating the technology, building real companies, dealing with real customers, building mm -hmm. an infrastructure, building a supply chain and, and scaling up. So I, I really do find it encouraging that there are these markets that aren't completely dependent on policy, right. even though in the longer term, and that's not maybe not that long from now, to do gigaton scale, you do need to have a policy signal and a price. Okay. Yeah, again, that complementarity between a mitigation policy or a, or a broad ranging policy that includes mitigation, but also gives signals to CDR. So yeah. So two more questions for you about this topic. I feel like I could ask you many questions, but I, I, I guess I've been thinking about in, in thinking a little bit more about this topic before the podcast. Certainly, there are uh, concentration targets that have been laid out in various uh, scientific reports that, you know, that we might want to get to uh, an atmosphere that only that sort of levels off at 350 parts per million of CO2. Um, and certainly that that number did not come out of nowhere. And yet it is one number. And of course, the world would continue to exist um, at various levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. So uh, how, do, how do you see policymakers or technologists being able to decide what the right level of CO2 is, and therefore where to sort of Let's say in a magic universe 50 years in the future where we are pulling substantial amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere, kind of how do we know when to stop? Particularly if these are now, if, if the technology is actually driving industries and jobs, how do we say, right, nope, we're good. We've pulled enough out. We're at 350 ppm. We're going to stop here. I think that would be a really good problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, uh, I guess there, yeah, there are concerns about who gets to decide about what the right level of CO2 in the atmosphere is. Um, and I guess maybe my view is a little more short term, which means more like the next several decades where, you know, the, the downside of going to a thousand parts per million or 1200 or something like that is, is, is tremendously uh, negative and also completely feasible and completely possible to yeah. think about. And so yeah. thinking about ways to avoid 1200 and get down to whatever it is, half of that or 500 or 400, um, yeah, I guess to me, like the less, the better. Um, but yeah, I guess at some point you do have to think about what the, the long-term equilibrium would want, would be. And I guess I, I get, yeah, I guess I don't see that as a problem right now, but it could be at some point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I can definitely understand that you wouldn't want to let any future management challenges sort of stop you from, uh, from getting the technology up and running now. So yeah, thanks. Um, and just another pushback that I've occasionally heard in the discussions around CDR is sort of back to a topic that we touched on at the very beginning, which is a concern that some people have that if CDR is in fact viable and, uh, and sort of regularly available as an option, um, that it just sort of perversely allows emitters, and in many ways, that's all of us, to just keep pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. So it sort of allows us to not have to uh, consider any of the perhaps more challenging uh, behavioral change aspects. Um, so what's your take on, on that criticism? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's that much carbon removal potential available. So if we're doing like 40 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere every year now, and, you know, could potentially double that if we don't, uh, if we continue our, our ways to something like 80, when we did this you know, assessment, we, we think there's a potential carbon removal of something like something around 10 gigatons a year. So there's no way we're going to offset putting 50 or 60 or 70 gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere with what we think there's available for um, carbon removal. So there's just they don't really match up. It's really just a complement. It's just part of the solution. Um, yeah, but I also, yeah, I don't really... I guess there's yeah just concern that that people are using this as a reason not to do mitigation 
and I, I don't know, I, I don't quite see that argument because, you know, we've been knowing we needed to do emissions reductions for 30 years and we really have not made a lot of movement on it. Some countries have to give them credit, but in, in from an overall global scheme, which is what matters, um, we really, we really haven't. And so to say that it was, uh, having carbon removal available that's lead, led us to not do anything, I, I don't, that wasn't really an option. So I don't really see that as a, as the reason. And to say that that's the reason now, I, I think, I don't think that's really what's, what's driving people. So yeah, I, I, don't, I really think of it more like an insurance policy, um, mm -hmm. probably one that we're going to need, but one that's going to um, help us avoid some of the, some of the worst case uh, scenarios. And so it may be that when you have an insurance policy, there is some, moral hazard and you know if you have fire insurance you're a little bit less careful with fire in your house but it's still your house and you still don't want it to catch on fire and so it's worth it having the insurance even if there is some uh difference in behavior that happens and so i guess that's how i look at carbon removal it's something that we we need and if the if it skews our incentives a little bit to uh emit more you know it, it's worth it that's not a reason not to do it mm -hmm. that's very helpful so, Greg, we are pretty much at the end of our time here, uh, and so I guess I better close with our, our regular uh, ending feature, which is called Top of the Stack. And uh, in this segment, we ask our guests uh, to recommend some more good content, um, a book, an article, a podcast, a movie. So, Greg, what's on the top of your stack? And if there are recommendations that you want to make either for your own research, I know you've mentioned an assessment that you guys have done. We can certainly put a link to that. But if there's anything sort of broader or outside your own work that you'd want to recommend, too, we'd love to hear it. I've really had my head down the last several months of trying to trying to finish a book that's coming out uh, late this spring or early summer. But it is relevant to what we're talking about here. And it's a book on looking at the evolution of solar PV technology and how it became so inexpensive, and then thinking about how some of the lessons from that could be applied to carbon removal technologies or other mitigation technologies. So that's that's really what's been my focus the last several months, and um, I'm hoping to, to have more to, to show about that when the book comes out in, in the next few months. Okay, great, great. Do you have a working title for us? So we can... Yeah, the title is How Solar Became Cheap, and it's a model ah. for low carbon ah. innovation. Okay, fantastic. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been, this is obviously a topic that I would say continues to get an increasing amount of attention. So it's nice to have a, a grounding in it from, from an expert. Great. Thank you. I really enjoyed your questions and really enjoy your podcast as well. Well, glad to hear it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.